what we try to do is get them to understand that it's not just like your your PI and you know the five other PIs and and their sort of interpretation of the research you're doing. It's also like my interpretation as a non you know researcher who's who's into science and your moms and like you know a bunch of people who live in Wisconsin who are you know farmers or who work in a factory or who are teachers or who you know are religious people and that is very hard because it requires i think the process by which most of our scientists kind of get to that space of becoming really good storytellers requires like a bit of personal growth and sort of pain on their end Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. For me, that means usually something about the philosophy of science, about the way that we organize knowledge, the way that we put facts together, although that's a very historical way of seeing this, the way that we come to determine what it is that we believe is true. It's always been an interesting question for me, I think, but lately, especially working at the Santa Fe Institute, I've been thinking a lot about how we come to understanding and how the social dimensions of this process, while themselves, yes, an excellent subject of quantitative study and of literary criticism are also something else. They are human stories. And as this week's guest, Nadia Ortelt, says later in this episode, these stories of the scientific process are crucial in ways that we don't even yet fully understand. There's something that future generations are for sure going to regard as frustratingly absent from the record of science we've left up to this point vital gaps in our understanding of the evolution of human knowledge. So it's really cool to talk to Nadia because she has this company, Massive Science, that teaches scientists how to be better communicators so that everyone has access to science writing that is not only as rigorous as it needs to be to honor the research, but as candid as it needs to be to honor the scientists involved not to mention as compelling as it needs to be to honor not only the reader, but our understanding of neuroscience and narrative and what it is that makes a good story, what it takes to change a mind in however subtle of a way. So up ahead is Nadia Ortelt, but first I want to thank everyone who has been reviewing this show on iTunes. I kind of slept on requesting this for several dozen episodes. And then I stopped by the other day and realized that there are now something like over 115 reviews of the show. That's more reviews than episodes. That's awesome. I really appreciate it. It helps get this program, these conversation into the ears and minds of everyone who could appreciate, who could benefit from them. And that is the point. So thanks. Also, thanks to everybody who has been supporting me at Patreon. It's it's coming along fairly well lately. Uh, Wim Forceville, Dylan Manning, Glistening Deepwater. Thank you all so much for recently joining that squad. And I want to give a special shout out to Mike Schwab and Know Your Meme, Future Fossils Podcast's new featured sponsor. 
It's an interesting site. Uh, know Your Meme, if you haven't checked it out. They're fascinated by the findings we discover while researching memes. The medium provides, as they say, a unique vector for modern communication, one that frequently has obscure Rorschach-adjacent properties. Know Your Meme is galloping into a special year for their team, their visitors, and their community. And they'd like to extend an invitation for you to join that community of memeologists. They have an extensive base of articles on the site already for you to read and comment on. You can log in, visit the forums, write articles of your own, edit any of thousands of living documents. Kind of reminds me of Zhuangzi commenting on Lao Tzu and how really hypertext is the original form of written human communication. Uh, We're just getting better at it. So knowyourmeme.com. Go check them out. All right. Ooh, commercial. Thank you. One last thing before we begin. I want to apologize to everyone for putting this show out less frequently than I would like. I know maybe this is unnecessary because there are too many good podcasts to listen to at any given time, and it seems always a backlog on the shows I want to hear. But for those of you who are voracious enough to have been consuming every new episode of Future Fossils the week it came out, I want to apologize to you (laughs) for slowing down a little bit as I prepare to become a father in just a couple weeks and adjust to a lot of new initiatives and new responsibilities in my professional life. I'm working on some very exciting things I'll get to share with you soon. So hang tight and I'm going to shoot for quality over quantity over the next few months. All right. Thank you so much and enjoy. This is Nadia Ortelt of Massive Science. Nadia Ortelt, thank you so much for joining me on Future Fossils. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I'm really excited to to delve in with you to yeah. something. Yeah. So um, a bit of backstory, right, is that uh, our mutual friend, Robert Gehorsum, introduced us when he was visiting Santa Fe Institute. And he told me that as a newly hired communications science person, communicating science, that uh, I should be aware of your work at Massive Science because you're doing all sorts of extraordinary stuff, helping to shape the future of science storytelling, or at least promote good storytelling in science. Um, And then we met, we had a a great conversation and here we are. And all of this is getting cut out because it's just crap, but I'm really, (laughs) but I'm super glad. I'm I'm super grateful to to Robert for introducing us because I do find your work and, and the work of you and your colleagues very interesting. And I'd love to hear how you got into the field of science communication and why you decided that a project like massive science was so important. Yeah, that's a great question. And it has the story of how I got here is an interesting one and kind of a meandering one. Um, as I think a lot of, a lot of interesting stories are like that. They're not, they're really nonlinear. So I, I had always wanted to go to art school and then uh, through a variety of, or for a variety of reasons, I was uh, kind of shoved into uh, science and engineering school. And so I studied neuroscience as an undergraduate and I did a lot of research from kind of day one in 
Jim DeCarlo's lab, who's still at um, MIT. He does a lot of high-level uh, vision research. And I, you know, having never done research science before, having never been in a lab, I was completely bowled over by this method of investigation that I was somehow like just dumped into as a, as a really young person um, and kind of fell in love with it, but was also like deeply frightened of it and just in total awe, struck by it, really. The idea that somehow um, like all of our knowledge production comes out of this like really kind of messy process where just a bunch of people are sitting in a room and debating, you know, a, a piece of knowledge that had been you know, put out in a, in a scientific research paper and then everybody tore it apart, put it back together again, formed their own hypotheses and that sort of process had been going on ad infinitum since, you know, I mean, arguably for thousands of years, but really since the Renaissance in a lot of ways. So um, I was, I think that was a kind of like inception, the seed of like why I just became really fascinated with um, kind of the translation of science and how and how science is a part of culture and how it kind of like bleeds out into um, all sorts of different areas um, now in a contemporary uh, space. And so after that, I, um, I had always sort of moved back and forth between science uh, research, scientific research, and then also documentary film production. So I, I like picked up a camera, I bought a book, how to make a, a documentary film in like 2005 or something with uh, another undergrad who's also, um, she was a neuroscientist and then ha now studies the ethics of DIY brain interfaces. Her name's Anna Wexler. She's at UPenn. She's really, she's awesome. So her and I were like, oh, let's make, let's become filmmakers. We don't know how to do this. And so we did it. It took us like 13 years to make a feature length film. And that was a, that was a, that was a thing that was happening sort of behind the scenes as I was doing all sorts of other things. Uh, but that kind of set the stage for like the storytelling piece of my life. And then uh, I sort of interwove that in with, with research for a while, decided that doing a PhD was really not the direction that I wanted to go in. I think a lot of, a lot of people who don't decide, who decide to not do a PhD, that's, that's a that's a very specific decision to make because I think the process of science, although it's beautiful theoretically in practice, it's it's really arduous and it takes a very specific type of person to like kind of go in day after day and do the same thing over and over again. But one of the things that always really struck me was like leaving the scientific space or the science space, the engineering space, was that it it was kind of this unknown like black box for most people who weren't exposed to it and. Um, there was a moment actually where I like was exposed, like the, the Pandora's box was opened other than sort of jumping into a lab. But it was when uh, the PI that I was working with at the time, David Cox, who's now the um, the director at the MIT IBM AI, AI Watson Institute uh, or lab rather. Um, but he, uh, I remember him just like opening casually a door in the lab and there was like a macaque in there, which is, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever seen a macaque? Michael? In person? Not, I mean, at zoos, you know. <laughs> Yeah, a macaque in person when it's like four feet away from you, um, you know, affixed in a box, a clear box that has like a head post and it's like staring at a screen. It's doing like a experiment, has its hands on like a little cursor. Uh, it's a lot to take in when you just <laughs> suddenly are exposed to it and you're 18 and you have no idea what's going on in the world. And like suddenly you're like, oh, wow, this is science is like it's real there's a physical there's an animal here we're like pulling data out of its brain we're observing it like what the hell's going on so i think at that moment understanding that understanding how complicated it was and how messy it was and just how awesome the whole thing was i've i've always been trying to figure out like how do you how do you take that and how do you 
bring it to people who are not going to devote their lives to scientific research, but who still have this real curiosity and sort of interest in how that process happens. Um, and so the storytelling, making documentary films, becoming a producer over the past 10 years, um, sort of putting aside lab research has all led to, through a series of sort of half steps and steps to Massive, which is a kind of attempt to to create a, a Wikipedia almost of scientific knowledge, but that is authored all by uh, scientists and experts in sort of science and engineering and mathematics and, and uh, medical fields. The idea that somehow we could take the sort of canon of published scientific literature and turn it into something that's searchable and um, trustworthy and actually full of a kind of subjective, emotive tone that you actually find in scientific research, that's what I wanted to make. And so that's kind of, massive is like one small step in that direction i think mm. there's you know in that was that was a really long explanation i'm sorry fine you know usually i'm the one who's going on and on uh on this show and feeling weird about it um so like something that i want to point out about the story that you just told and like the part that i find so captivating as a social primate is that it was told in the first person and that it's it's like a report about your actual story. And yet, uh, in the scientific literature, we have gone as a, you know, as a culture that produces this form of knowledge construction, uh, we have gone way the hell out of our way to erase the subject from the scientific publication. And like, I remember a couple of years ago reading an article in New Scientist, which I think it was New Scientist. It was, it was written by... The, the research team that did this study and they were talking about how we did this and we thought this and I thought it was so bizarre to hear science in the first person even the sort of royal we you know like it's I mean it, there's a little bit of that in a lot of these it, it seems like there's more now than there was but at the same time there's this you know the, the whole s tilt of things is to make claims about reality that are true no matter where you're standing right and so this it feels like we went through a phase where the goal was to perform the sort of view from nowhere right and then now we're at a point where this the subtleties of the nuances of the the questions that we're asking uh de demand in large part because of the findings of neuroscience demand that we know who is actually asking the question? Like, what model are we looking through here? And it's not just what model, but like what system is is using that model. It seems like there's a return to says who in the in the scientific conversation. Yeah, I mean, if you think about like there there is a requirement now for context and for and as part of that context, like. Um, subject some kind of subjective reality like and it's interesting that you use the word performance of objectivity Did you, i think that's what you said but i think <laughs> yeah. there also i think there also needs to be a kind of um a performance of subjectivity to a certain extent i mean all subjectivity is a performance i think but scientists in particular yeah in order in order to understand what is what what question they're asking what question they're really asking I think especially for people who are not sort of steeped in the intricacies of some tiny subfield and the sort of like 10 people who've defined the like subcategorization of thought within that subfield, because those researchers know that those PIs know like where everybody stands, but everybody else, 
especially in, in inter like um, or I keep wanting to say intramural science, but like, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, interdisciplinary science, they, they need to know that context. And as you're saying, they need to understand what that, who, who is performing that subjective science. Or like, you know, uh, my graduate advisor, Sean Hargens co-authored this book, Integral Ecology, Uniting Multiple <laughs> Perspectives on the Natural World. And in it, he makes this, this case for, basically an intersection of the different schools of ecology with the different levels of psychological development and points out how nature looks completely different to like a two-year-old, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old, like that concept itself develops along with the subject. And so, you know, by the time you're like 60 and capable of this like remarkable tolerance of paradox and ambiguity and you're in like what harvard developmental psychologists call the construct aware phase of ego development where you realize that you are a story that you're telling then that sort of boundary this the city wall between human civilization and nature disappears you know at least conceptually and so you know the idea that you need to know where someone is stationed psychologically before you can even evaluate their claims before you can even say like what what kind of thing they're talking about seems to be really critical and that's something that i don't see being done in science um practically at all i mean a lot of people would i i imagine like most scientists would not agree with a lot of what we're saying here um i think the idea that that context matters at all is like an abomination, you know, to like, (laughs) I mean, theoretically, maybe not for like a physicist, but I think in practice, most people disagree with, with that. And I, which I think is, I think is like, it's like self affirming in some way. It's like, yeah, of course, if you, if you feel that that is not relevant then you can sort of continue to ask questions that disregard the kind of context and the kind of subjectivity that's necessary to ask more complicated and more ambiguous and sort of softer questions and that's like i mean that's an ongoing question that i have generally which is like how can you ask questions of complexity without like is the is the quest in science to ask questions in finer finer detail really going to to lead us to answers that actually like explain anything that is complex to us i think in the neuroscience has like constant has been struggling with that for you know since its inception as a kind of field uh, in quotes but um i think yeah, I mean, the same is true of ecology, right? the same is true of uh, psychology, and I think of medicine to a certain extent, too, although a lot of people would also argue that that's not true. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't think it will. <laughs> well, you got the placebo and... effect, you know, that whole piece of it, I think, seems like there are these ways that it's, it's sort of perniciously reentering the conversation, whether we want it to or not. Yeah, I mean, so I just, this is maybe an aside, but probably There's not. There's no aside um, here. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, so this weekend I went to Alex and Allison Gray's Chapel of the Sacred Bears in uh, upstate New York. Or I guess it's upstate, I don't know technically where that is, on the Hudson somewhere. And I was, you know, there are moments where, you know, as, as a scientist, I kind of was like balking, but there are also, um, <laughs> there were also like a lot of moments of, you know, I think an awareness that the ways in which they're trying to investigate really complicated questions of 
group psychology and and uh, spirituality and sort of environmental awareness are really the only way that like the only way that we can answer and ask those questions are from an entirely different perspective than the one in which like contemporary objective science affords us and i think it's very interesting to watch especially right at this moment because i think the grays have kind of tapped in or they're here at a moment when sort of movements in sort of psychedelic science or medicine or drugs uh, art and spirituality are kind of coalescing as a alternative mode of investigation of the world and it's very interesting because they're not presenting it as an alternative to sort of like scientific thought they're actually presenting it as a integrated way of scientifically sort of looking at the world which i thought was really fascinating so i was thinking about that a lot um while i was there i don't know if that's kind of relevant to this conversation i know you have a lot of thoughts there. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I had Dennis McKenna on the show once upon a time, and uh, that interview actually got brought up in my job interview at this place. <laughs> they were like, so we saw that you uh, you discussed the scientific method and interrogations thereof with Dennis McKenna. But, um, you know, that piece of it, which is that under the altered epistemological framing you know under the altered selfhood and sort of available uh, world space uh, the world space available to that self of these non-ordinary states of consciousness the scientific method can continue to be practiced sort of um like trial and error and i mean it i guess you know it really depends on to what degree you have ceased occupying like normal space-time coordinates but like that's just the thing like richard doyle in uh, darwin's pharmacy I, I bring this book up all the time and i keep it here at my desk at work because he talks about how you know a lot of the big questions in science are is it this way or that way kind of dualistic binary questions and operating from a space where we're not held to the conventional concepts of self and other then the conventional ways of practicing science have to be radically reformulated. So my question is, and I don't know if you, I, I feel like you might have an answer here, is like, how do you start asking questions then? Or like, is, is, is even a question the wrong framework for some sort of like, like, is there a, is there a kind of science that can happen? Or is that, is that whole framework like out? Like when you, when you have to, when everything becomes a sort of subject, like, is that just the humanities? Like if we, is it, are we just telling stories then? Is there some middle ground? Like, what does that look like? Because I think that's always been, or is it, or is it simply like there are many different ways of asking questions about the universe, and we sort of we'll have traditional science, and then we'll also have other different other sort of ways of investigating the world, and we'll always just have to sort of exist within this maelstrom of um, paradox, paradoxical answers to those questions in those different spaces. Or is there is there like an actual new kind of science that has to emerge as we start asking more complicated questions? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I don't have an answer to that, but I, I are there people who are sort of trying to figure out what that kind of new framework could be? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, Francisco Varela, who co-authored the theory of autopoiesis, you know, like the the sort of self-organizing cell that it's self-organizing process is a form of cognition he co-authored also this book called on becoming aware that looked at the way that we move from an individual perception to a sort of uh, 
intersubjective, like, you know, an agreement that I had this experience and so did you. And then you keep adding perspectives, you know, from first person, second person, third. And that really like the scientific method emerges at the third person where you're, you know, you're, it's not merely a matter of cultural consensus, you know, that you're, you're constantly seeking peer review. You're constantly seeking an, an, an outside opinion that disagrees. So I don't know that like, I don't know that science can be performed as we understand it in a, in a space where we lack the cognitive resources to hold the, the position of a subject object kind of operation, you know, but I think, I feel like science fiction has an answer to this. Yeah. <laughs> you got an so I feel like I just, there's, I think it's a, um, it's a short story from cosmic comics. If I don't, I, I think I'm recalling that correctly where, human there, there's no there's no like individual subjective consciousness there's a sort of like intercorrelated universe of like beams of light and energy and there's a sort of like under which is which i was i was thinking about because this you know alison gray and has her like web of indra uh, oh, and yeah. The, yeah so i was thinking about this this science fiction story which is like a very beautiful frame of like what it would be like for the universe to ask different questions when there is no like subjective eye and but i mean it's a story right and i think in some ways yeah cosmic comics is about the universe telling stories to itself or like somehow us telling uh, ourselves stories about universes that don't exist or could exist or do exist in our memories anyway it was very far far afield from the original no, not really. Like, let me let me drop this in there and see where it stands for you, because this was sort of the the linchpin of this talk I gave recently, where I was thinking there's this chart that shows sort of like the complexity of a model that you're using to view a situation, and on the one end, it's like you're not asking enough questions. You're you've got great certainty. Your computational costs are low. And to me, I see this as like fundamentalist religion. You've got the one sacred text. It answers everything. And if something else comes up, you just throw it out. And then on the other end, you've got this thing where it's high computational time, high energy requirements, and it, it never actually like ever settles in an answer. You know, you're just you're just asking and asking and, and gathering more and more data. And that to me feels like the opposite. That's like Zen meditation. You know, like you don't ever settle into a narrative framing about who you are or how the world is. And it just remains open and it's constantly being modified. And then the sweet spot is in the middle. And it's like, you know, the the perspective that I'm distilling from my time here, you know, working with all of these complexity researchers is that that sweet spot is where it's like the channel into which evolution drives everything. It's like the, the good enough explanation. And so like, you know, maybe what we're talking about here is sort of like skateboarding through a half pipe where you like, sometimes you're on one end where you're just like drinking from the fire hose of reality data. And then on the other end, you're principally preoccupied with the narrative architecture of that information and then really in the middle is where the science actually happens, that it's some, it's some balance of those two, and that maybe a society needs all of those forms in order to 
itself sort of present a sufficiently Goldilocks response. Anyway, I don't know. We're getting so so deep. I mean, that's that's interesting. That's like yeah to to get it to bring it like a little bit more into a practical realm like i've noticed that those different that half pipe like people fall into all sorts of they they fall on either end like they're either hanging from they've fallen and they're like hanging from one side or the other the half pipe or and some people are just like lying down in the middle <laughs> and i think most scientists also sort of fall into those spaces um and what i think is interesting about like the sort of the architecture of contemporary science like you know academia increasingly you know like corporate research science of which i place you know like google and everybody who's working there and um you know i think it's forcing people it's forcing people towards either end like there isn't really a space for the kind of science that is accepting of like this flux or that is constantly in flux it's just like it's not allowed and so i think when I talk about like a shift or like a different way of conducting science, partially I wonder like how can we push things back into a space where that flux is, you know, ever present and acceptable, if that makes sense. Yeah. What I find what I find really interesting is that I mean, this is just like a personal theory of mine, but I wonder there's a certain masculine element to a lot of questions that are asked of the world. And um, I think as science becomes a, a space where many different types of people who are who don't identify in that sort of who, who culturally don't sort of come from that like hyper masculine space are allowed to start conducting investigative investigative paths of their own. I think that science will actually shift. And I think that's just like a, that's just statistics. Like if you start to allow a different sort of neuroecology to like start asking those questions, you create a new ecological space for science to kind of grow within. And I mean, just totally anecdotally, like I, I can, and totally qualitatively, I can kind of see that amongst young, young scientists who don't sort of fall into, you know, the, the typical demographic of, of a scientist, at least from like, you know, I don't know, the 1950s kind of like idea of the guy in the white coat who's sort of they're doing something alone and asking a singular question that only he can ask and understand and sort of contemplate the answer to, which I don't think is, is just not possible anymore. And it's, and things are shifting. And increasingly the questions aren't even being asked by us anymore, or answered by us anymore. They're being answered by like proxies of ourselves that we create with data sets that are increasingly complex. Um, and so I think like, that's a whole other question, which I, I think is, amazing that we create an increasingly complex like replication of reality that we feed into uh, machines that then sort of give us more and more approximately correct answers which are just like increasingly more complex so we're we're approaching some sort of like memento mori for reality in a way (laughs) uh, by like making this like borkesian like sort of library of realities and sort of like feeding it into um so i mean I just want to make those, you know, multiplicative realities that we're studying uh, weirder and stranger and more diverse and complex because that's the only way that we can sort of pull out different types of answers and like set loose everybody on those questions to a certain extent, you know, to to ask them because that's the only way we can not have homogeneity like across the board, right? Um, which is like, I think nobody wants that. <laughs> Well, I mean, nobody, nobody who is like properly tuned to the 
survival demands of our civilization wants that you know because we all know that the like monocultural approach doesn't work it's a very sort of 20th century pipe dream not a half pipe dream you said something that yeah I, i was delighted that you brought up borges and this notion of like the one one scale map that just lays over the territory and doesn't help us at all because it's the same size as the thing. It's like useless as a map, right? And I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of how much knowledge each person can hold. I had Hunter Motz on the show, and Hunter's somebody who thinks a lot about this, this, uh, the knowledge crisis that we're going through when, you know, we're not only are we at a point where the, you know, the common people, to use a totally abhorrent term, non-scientists have a trouble understanding the the sort of specific lingo but even the experts are having difficulty keeping up with the literature in their own field it's not just a system level thing it's like there's only so much information that fits in one person's brain and like you were saying you know so many of the questions that we have are questions that require you know it requires multiple perspectives simply to even like frame the question right and then we're getting the machines involved. And like we're at, I, I, I saw a presentation here where they were saying, you know, the more like the, the, the weird thing, I'm really curious to know what you think about machine learning in terms of the practice of science, because the brain science that's being done now in terms of this presentation I saw was on training machine learning algorithms to make sense of the raw data from medical imaging scanners. So like uh, MRI or, or PET scanners, and they feed this. It doesn't look like the image that we ultimately see. It's rendered in this, what they call a case space. And it just looks like this kind of abstract plot. It looks like a, like a blurry star or something. And then they train the machines to correlate everything and generate a human readable image of the scanned anatomy and the better that that system does the less we know how it does it like the better the machine learning algorithms get the more mysterious and incomprehensible what's going on inside them is to human beings because we're just setting evolution on these systems and letting them sort it out it's not like we designed it to act this way and so they're sending additional machine learning algorithms in to try and understand what's going on inside of those machine and learning algorithms. And you can see where this story is headed. Like it's an endless regression of ineffable black box insanity. We're at that point. Although, yeah, go ahead. I feel, I mean, I feel that like the black box discussion is a little bit of a distraction from the subjective human actor a little bit. Like, we're we're everybody is kind of like fixated on it and I find it interesting too because of the idea that there's a sort of like unknown godlike entity which is like you know figuring things out that um we find inexplicable and it is ineffable in some ways I feel like that's a it's like a mythological construct that in reality is like not really rooted it, it doesn't it allows us to sort of step away from this thing that we've built and say like I don't have I have like very little responsibility, which I don't think is like that is not really tethered to the reality of how a lot of machine learning works because we have so much agency in creating these machines. And actually, um, I think I told you about this. I just uh, came out of 
doing this really interesting kind of three work three week program at the school for poetic computation which is this really awesome really fantastic kind of workshop where these type we we talk about these questions like constantly for hours and hours with with people who are machine learning specialists who are programmers and coders and in sort of artistic spaces scientific spaces engineering spaces you know people working at google who are doing their own artistic practice and and a lot of what I came away from those discussions about machine learning or what I took away from that was that actually um, we, we've created this set of mythologies. We, uh, especially the creators of a lot of machine learning kind of algorithms or who are doing research in this space, because it is frightening what we're doing, but we don't, we don't want to take responsibility. Like we, we want to step away. And I think we have a responsibility too. And so like, although those questions are interesting, like, you know, what is happening behind this black box? The reality is like the black box is not as big a problem as us as a black box. Why are we doing this? Like, why are we making these models? Like why, you know, in some cases like, okay, we want to be able to, you know, diagnose lung cancer at a much earlier stage than a, you know, a human eye could ever do. And with a high degree of accuracy, that's, that's great. But like, what are the repercussions of making this type of um, machine learning sort of system, uh, visual machine learning system. Like we can't answer those questions. And to me, that's more frightening than the question of like, what's going on behind the scenes, because what's going on behind the scenes is something that's like probably, uh, similar or parallel or, um, related in some way to its maker and what's happening in our heads. But we can't if we can't even answer the question about our own subjective sort of reasons for creating these systems. I think like that's that's the sort of deeply frightening piece of it. Um, because if we want to make something that's sort of out of control, like we'll do it, and we're pretty good at. It's not like history has sort of demonstrated that we don't know how to do that, right? <laughs> we know how to make lots of different types of technologies that are sort of just beyond the grasp of many people's understanding to the extent that they then you know fall into the wrong hands or used in a way that is detrimental to like huge numbers of people that kills huge numbers of people, you know? So I think, I think over the past years I've developed like pretty strong feelings about the sort of ethics and, and responsibility that the sort of ethics of subjectivity in science and research. And like, I think that my, my mission, even with massive science is to try to like wrench the conversation from like that space of, wow, like what's happening? Like, isn't that crazy? Is everything just going to like, rapidly like drive towards the singularity and then we're all dead to like hey we actually have control like right now of what's going to happen like why don't why don't we start sort of asking ourselves why we're doing certain things and why we're developing certain technologies or certain we're developing capacities like why are we doing that why why do we want to why do we want to create a one-to-one map of our own cognitive function like why are we fixated on that i mean i have all sorts of theories as to why that's the case but i I think that's (laughs) um i mean i think we're like luridly and narcissistically curious about reproduction and we this is we've we've figured out some like sort of sick way of of building of like creating and birthing these like building blocks of cognition that we are we are fascinated by in the same way that we're like all fascinated by babies and the the act of giving birth and sort of and sex like i think that there's there's some there's some access uh creation access that's that's happening there that i think 
that's that's sort of one theory that I have. And another is like there's I think there's a death drive mm-hmm. that uh, humans have, um, and in particular, you know, like we are the tools that we create. I don't think there's such a thing as humans without tools. It's there's no like sort of um, er human that exists like just with hands and feet and like no objects to explore the world. Like our brains evolved in concert with the tools that we we created and with the material culture that we that we manifested around us um so yeah i I think that we we have a compulsion at times i don't know if this is like an evolutionary like sort of dead end to create increasingly dangerous tools that will allow us to investigate the world in ways that like have the potential like this high risk tool manufacturing is (laughs) kind of i don't know what that is but i mean it's it's yeah I don't know why. I mean, humans are, we're, we're fascinating and we're like really complicated, but we're also like a bit sick, you know? Um, Is this the kind of, is this the kind of question that you invite scientists to ask when you're training them to be narrative storytellers for your, your platform here? I'm like, I'm curious. I mean, that's a yes or no thing, but then like the B is like, I'm curious what it actually looks like, what the, what that process is for like onboarding uh, scientific researchers and making them better storytellers because I feel like that that kind of question is the right way to take it or at least a right way the kind of question of like which kind of question well, just like ethical self-inquiry or like self-inquiry yeah. in general like you know I, I, I feel like the ability to weave a yarn is probably hypothesis is directly correlated to one's own ability to investigate their own mind yeah i I, so we do encourage that like we and and there's a lot of friction and i sort of tell a lot of the scientists that come on board with us and and have ideas about stories that they want to tell which frequently hew pretty closely to like just the science that's being done in the lab and like the paper that was produced and like what does it mean i try to like and and our editors try and our whole team tries in the process that we use to like wrench them away from that. And it's a little bit, it's like a, it's a growth process. And in that growth process, there's friction and there's like pain because for many researchers, like they've spent, you know, four years, 10 years, whatever, 20 years being trained in this sort of objective storytelling, um, method. And, uh, it hurts them to know that actually that's not the most effective way of building like trust with people, which is essentially what storytelling is. It's like, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to expose a sort of vulnerable piece of myself as a storyteller or of a character in this story, but I'm going to allow you in there and trust that you're not going to kill me in that process or, or sort of take this information and do something like terrible with it. And that, that whole that whole instinct, which I think we all naturally have, like, you know, to, to tell a story that engages a person and builds trust has been like beaten out of a lot of scientists because it's totally unacceptable. You just, you'll never have a paper published. You just like, you won't even get through grad school. So like the basic training sort of removes that. And we're just trying to, to, in a very small way, provide a pathway for those scientists to like Ask, start asking those questions like why do why do I have this set of beliefs? Well, oh, maybe it's because the PI that I've been working with for four years is like, you know, very um, very dedicated to this one framework for understanding the research that we're doing. Most of them already understand that. I think what we try to do is get them to understand that it's not just like your your PI and you know the five other PIs and and their sort of 
uh, interpretation of the research you're doing. It's also like my interpretation as a non, you know, researcher who's, who's into science and your moms and like, you know, a bunch of people who live in Wisconsin who are, you know, farmers or who work in a factory or who are teachers or who, you know, are religious people. And that is very hard because it requires, it really requires, I think the, 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 the process by which most of our scientists kind of get to that space of becoming really good storytellers requires like a bit of personal growth and sort of pain on their end. And so I have to, I have to warn a lot of them before they come into the process that like, it's not necessarily going to be easy, but we try, what we try to do at massive science is to create this sort of like soft intermediary between the pain and vulnerability of subject of the subjective self and storytelling in that way where you're like, look, yeah, I'm a scientist and I, and I work for a land grant university. We have a very particular viewpoint on, you know, agricultural science um, or, you know, I'm from the global South. Like I have a very different idea about um, genetic engineering and its possible impact on like large populations of people or, you know, those types of questions. Those are also, you know, not surprisingly, the most popular stories that we ever publish because they expose the sort of subjectivity of science. They, they kind of expose that the threads of that fabric that is like shimmery and beautiful and like looks like a reality when we when we look at it from the outside but if you start to sort of like tear it apart you can see that it's a construct and you can see the reality behind it is a sort of like big mess which is what a lot of science is um, with a lot of people who are like really trying very hard to like create something you know that's within there and, and people love that it's like it's a uh, it's endearing to know that people are working so hard and they care so much about something that they're they're really willing to sacrifice a lot personally and professionally and then also sacrifice the self like i mean i think that's that's the sort of core of of what we're trying to do which is very difficult it's like this crystal this like beautiful crystal it's very fragile where we're like look scientists are like very sensitive people they're they've devoted their lives to a certain extent to sort of like investigating some question uh, of varying degrees of complexity and like if we expose too much of that to you it will like break you know because they, they're vulnerable and sensitive but at the same t so we have to mediate it and i think for the most part it works and i think we're we're constantly trying to figure out like what are better ways of like bringing up that friction without without destroying our audience's trust and our ability to like tell a, a truthful story or one that hues as closely to the truth as possible but also a subjective one that is like interesting and engaging and this the same questions apply for our scientists who are writing for us but i don't know i also there's like some weird sea change that's happening and this is kind of like an aside but i think younger people younger scientists that we work with for earlier at, at an earlier stage of their career are approaching these kinds of questions like in a different way which like they're more and i think maybe this is like one of the great boons of social media and the way in which like younger people engage with the internet and with the subjective self like they have many subjective selves because they have like many different um faces they're like that multi-headed like um i forget what that message Giannis. yes yeah yeah it's Giannis, but it's also the one with the four faces you know it's like oh. every different face the one from chapel of sacred mirrors that yeah Alex yeah always painting. yeah yeah but they they're used to doing that and so there's a sort of like flexibility and like really interesting plasticity around like creating those different subjective like narratives and 
there's like an ease at which people like move between those subjectivities or perceived subjectivities or subjective selves. And so I think like, yeah, think, I mean, obviously things we have no control over the way in which people are changing, but I, there is like something that's happening there that I think is fascinating. Like younger, younger scientists just have a different way of thinking about the science that they do in like their own space, their own agency in that space. So anyway, Sorry, that was a very there was a very long winded like rambling answer to a question that I can't even remember anymore. Olay, that's what we're all about here. <laughs> I, you know, first of all, I think that your your point on this being sort of a, a product or consequence of social media is really astute because I remember a few years ago reading this essay by Nathan Jurgensen who went on to be the uh, social media scholar. Uh, like the media theorist or whatever they whatever they called him at at Snapchat, and it was him and this guy PJ Ray writing an essay called "The Fan Dance" about exactly what you're talking about the performance of sort of multiple selves online, and you know Jurgensen's been an interesting dude in theoretically in a couple ways. One is he rejects the idea of a digital dualism that our lives online are somehow like ontologically distinct that it's like a different class of reality from everything else and in that sense he's counter critiqued people who have a problem with the way that young young people are constantly taking pictures and sharing their experiences because he says like this isn't they're not not being present with their friends they're being present with their friends you just don't see them because their friends are somewhere else you know, that this in some way, this is exactly the same kind of cultural activity that's always been going on. But then he says on top of that, because of the way that the affordances of these new media create an environment in which each of us is moving through different social spaces, sometimes overlapping, sometimes non-overlapping, that it's not that there really is like the end of privacy. And like, so even in these things that we've come to think of as sort of these panopticon surveillance deals younger savvier people than myself are hacking through these spaces in ways where what we're doing on un unintentionally unconsciously they're doing intentionally yeah i mean one of the other like one of the words that i think um maybe connects like this conversation about social media and also our conversations about machine learning and also what we're doing at massive is, is uh, and also a lot of what we talked about at the school for poetic computation which has really stuck with me is this idea of care and like what does it mean to sort of create a system where care is integrated into that system care for both other people for society for a community um because I, and i think the reality is like that is actually something that most people strive for you know they, they're striving for that regardless of the systems that have been put in place to sort of strip that from them, which is why, like, even though we have this sort of, you know, um, centuries old practice of science that sort of like strips away the idea that a scientist actually cares about their work and is invested in it and has a some sort of subjective experience of themselves as an actor, like they're still coming to us because they want to sort of relearn how to, how to do that in a way that allows them because they care about people. They care about the science. They care and, and they realize that expressing that care is important to sort of build bridges between people. And I think, you know, in the same way, like young people, really when it comes down to it, they care about, and everybody cares about connecting with other people. Like loneliness is 
is a sort of like opposite of care in some in some universe right like and and people are driving they, they will constantly drive away from loneliness which is like a it's an, it's an evolutionary drive i think i'm not one to generally use like sort of evolutionary explanations for behavior but Busted. i do think but yeah i know that's like that's the one time i'll ever do that um, bad science I, narrativization <laughs> I think, but I do think that, you know, most, most people need, uh, they need to feel cared for and they need to feel and that they can express care. And I think, um, and I think like, it's, it's really, it's a sort of like fine thread that connects a lot of different, a lot of these different pieces. And especially like when we're talking about machine learning, like if we can't answer the questions as to like why we care about creating these systems or whether or not we're creating a system which has inbuilt in it um care for you know other systems or other people like then we're really in a bad place um but i have i have like infinite hope that that people will always return to that to will always return to care Hmm. that's a beautiful thing i feel like not to hammer this home exactly but i do i feel like the question of the black box and the question of care are really intimately related to each other because like ultimately, you know, when you talk about trust and the way that being able to tell a story is a way that we build, that we establish trust and that learning from scientists why and how they conducted their research is like a shore or a hedge against this awful trend that we're seeing across pretty much every domain of human activity that society has scaled to the point where we're no longer capable of interacting with people directly enough that we can trust them if science ends up being sort of like backsliding into us just standing around machines and asking them questions they show us the work and we can't understand it then the scientists first of all the scientists lose their prestige as people who are capable of thinking this through but that's i mean whatever I, but like more importantly we lose a relationship with the humanity of our own knowledge my my concern here is not so much that it's like an existential risk it may end up that our incomprehensibly sophisticated technologies are just like totally awesome you know and that life is better but that we never figure out how or or why and that we lose something really valuable like we we like we lose um i mean maybe i'm totally worrying about the wrong thing here you know because we we were just fine and in, in like the pre-modern world this didn't bother us that life was a mystery you know but the thing was that we hadn't we hadn't created it ourselves <laughs> you know in yeah way, I, we, were, we weren't creating that mysterious yeah yeah, like we want to know, top. like that there's something about like the whether it's machine assisted or not, there's something about reaching a point where the questions we're asking or the answers we're getting are beyond our ability to explain to one another is well, I mean, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you yeah, because I I think I think the control right or the illusion of control like this this idea that we're we're creating all of these technologies, we like understand them. 120 percent and we will we will be able to sort of construct this giant sort of 
in, you know, industrial machinery that, you know, can recreate realities, that can investigate our lived reality, and that we understand every piece of it is a sort of, is like antithetical to the idea of care and, and, and humanity, right? Like we, to care is to act ethically, to be ethical, and control doesn't even exist in that same universe. And I think a lot of, and like control is sort of understanding everything, right? And being able to like move apart to, to change a variable and to sort of know exactly what, to have this sort of like deterministic machinery. And so maybe maybe like transcendence happens when we finally just start creating technology that, is, that it replicates reality in as much as like we don't understand it. Um, and, and we sort of let go of that. I mean, I mean, increasingly, maybe it's just because I, you know, I go to therapy and I know a lot of people go to therapy. I mean, I live in New York City, but I, I live in New York City, so that's kind of inevitable. But I do think there's something to be said for like relinquishing control or like the desire to attain more and more control and what that brings us in not just like a, a sort of emotional sense, like joy or happiness, but also what it releases us from and what it, what kinds of questions we can start asking when we stop trying to sort of control our environment or create machines that control the environment or create a system that we can control, which like is our environment. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you and I see a pretty eye to eye on this particular issue. I think our first conversation, we were talking about Kevin Kelly's graph of the exponential expansion of ignorance you know, that like every question answered raises multiple new questions. So we're kind of, you know, the, the whole notion that that science is leading us towards some sort of perfect knowing is totally wrong, like 1000% wrong. But like, okay, so I was just reading last night, uh, William Irwin Thompson, Passages About Earth. And Bill Thompson's this cultural historian, I've had him on the show, amazing mind. You know, he was personal friends with a lot of the people who pioneered kind of the sciences of complex adaptive systems. Paolo Soleri, Greg Bateson, Lynn Margulis, Stuart Brand were all members of his Lindisfarne Association. And so, you know, he's writing back in the 70s, right at the beginning of that organization, about how there's two kinds of science. He's like the real cultural division. And this is really like the last sort of like thing I want to drop in your mind pond here and see where it lands and what jumps out. He's like, the real cultural division is not between the sciences and the humanities. It's like you just said. It's like every scientist is a person with a self and a story and musical tastes and favorite books. And they live in a culture. And, and just because they don't necessarily communicate in that way, like their subjective experience, their cultural experience is very much not so much, bound, you know, divided between scientific and humanities ways of seeing things he's like the real the real division is between the people in the sciences or the humanities that see things in the archimedean way engineering control domination of nature the extension of will and the people who see things in the pythagorean way the mystic scientists you know and he, he points to like bf skinner and behaviorism on the archimedean side and he points to People like Carl Sagan, who are in it for the wonder on this sort of the mystic scientist side. And, you know, Einstein. But the point is that, that it's like there's these two profoundly different ways of knowing in the sciences. And um, I don't know. Do you think that really moving through an age where one is taking over from the other? 
or do you think that these are sort of like held in stable population and that that we're at a point where institutional science driven by massive companies like Google, uh, which, by the way, I got to say, I think it's kind of hilarious that the name of your company is Massive Science, even though it's like this miniature startup and it's very human scale and, and friendly and it has a face. But, do you, I mean, it seems as though as things become more and more complex and extreme that these two different ways of knowing are actually going to sort of be formalized in society in like massive institutional collaborations and then like these empowered garage researchers that have their own like DIY biopunk thing going on and that I don't know I, I, I don't know where we're going with this except that maybe there's like a speciation event at the level of like the way that we actually investigate the universe and that we're in the middle of it or do you witness this? I, think, I mean I think you brought up an interesting fact which is that like or well, okay, so just to to backtrack, you're talking about uh, BF Skinner, and did we did we talk about you? I don't know if you can uh -huh. edit this out. Did we talk? We didn't talk about Gertrude Stein and BF Skinner, did we? I don't believe we did. No. Okay, so there's this really amazing researcher, um, programmer, artist named Allison Parrish, and uh, she teaches at ITP in New York, I believe. But I heard a, a one of the lectures that she gave was about the uh, kind of history of like the idea of automatic writing and automatic painting, which was um, a kind of framework that was used at the beginning of the 20th century at the end of the, the end of the 19th century. This idea that somehow like you could, um, you could really access the, the ego, the sort of mystic element of the self through the automatism. So like allow it, like taking away the, the subjective self and allowing the, you know, something else to come through. And of course, there's like a history of like esoteric kind of religious, spiritual people and their practice around like automatic writing and painting. And in fact, at the Guggenheim in New York City right now, there's a amazing exhibit of uh, this woman, Hilma Offklint, who is a who is a Swedish painter who, who is a sort of automatic painter and sort of made these really beautiful uh, paintings that sort of brought together visualizations of science and, um, and physics that were happening in the beginning of like 1904 um, and sort of merging them with these like mystical experiences that she was having. But one of the things I didn't realize and that Alison Parrish was talking about was that there was a connection that is often not spoken about, but between psychology and sort of like early neuroscience and the idea of automatism. Um, and Gertrude Stein like developed her whole theory of experimental uh, experimental writing, which was like untethered from a narrative and from the subjective self through work that she was actually doing with B.F. Skinner, which is like kind of blew my mind. And I didn't understand like that. And actually right here, I have one of this book that I bought because I was so excited uh, about like understanding the, the correlation between the idea of creating like an untethered, subjective, written narrative form and early psychological experiments that a lot of French psychiatrists and psychologists were doing. It's called Gertrude Stein and the Correlations of Writing and Science by this guy, Stephen Meyer. So what I, to sort of answer your question, like I think that a lot of it has to do with who gets to tell the stories of what was actually happening at the time. Like our, mm. our conception of like whether or not people were troubled by what was known and what was unknown you know at certain times throughout history is like totally defined by the the sort of written 
and cultural record that's left behind. And so like one of the things that, I mean, this sounds like a super grandiose, but like what I'm trying to do is say like, okay, well, we have this like insane record of scientific research and like just a tiny drop of the context around it. And what if we started to record alongside with all of that science, the sort of actual subjective context of what was happening, almost like a sort of archaeological record for the future of like, because that data is actually important. The data of, that, that sits around the, the scientific research Like we need that. We need those stories so that we can understand things in the future when we look back. I think, you know, for some time I did a little bit of archaeological work and, um, you know, I was struck by like being out in the field and like, you know, stumbling upon some stone and realizing like there was an individual that made this hand axe and they did it for a reason. They did it here for a reason. They did it at a certain time for a reason. Like I'm discovering this, you know, 200,000 years later what, how the hell am I supposed to understand anything about this? I have to piece it together in the most arcane fashion and tell some story about what I think happened. That's what's going to happen with the like horrible record that we're leaving behind of the research that we're doing now. And it's not like we, we don't have the capacity to do that. I think it's just like a, it's, it's almost like hubris that we're, we're not collecting that information and sort of like packaging it with care to send off like a, you know, like a little emissary into the future. Like, this is why we did this science. Here's what here's what we could figure out with our really rudimentary tools that we have right now. Maybe if we give you all the context, you can like figure out some more things um, when you look back on this. Mm. You know, that's funny. You you kind of preempted the the way the question I ask that I usually end this show with, which is, if you were to act under the assumption that the future is watching or listening, um, not just to this episode, but, you know, to your life. And there's, there's like that, that sort of, I've heard a lot of people raise this, this notion that, you know, maybe one day, you know, every historian in training is assigned to like a social media profile from the early 21st century. And like they, you know, attempt to reconstruct this person's life and figure out their contributions to history. So if we are, you know, the data of this presumably very caring future investigation. Um, what would you hope to ask? What would you hope to say? You, Nadia. Um, I, I hope that, I hope that people in the future look back on you. You talking about me or you talking about like all of science? Like, what do I hope they look back on us like humans at this point in time in 2019? However you want to slice it. (laughs) So I think, I hope that, you know, the, the science technology and society researchers of like 3050, wherever they are. um, And the historians and sort of, future archaeologists who are coming and future scientists who are sort of looking back on this time and what we're doing. I really hope that they, they feel that, that there was a diversity of opinion, you know, that there was a diversity of, of thought, that there was a sort of like rich ecological, neurologically sort of like diverse approach to understanding the world and sort of investigating it. And my fear is that just as it's always been that, that diversity gets kind of like smoothed over and wiped clean by, by just the passage of time, but also by the stranglehold that 
people have had on, you know, narratives, narratives of the past. And so I think, yeah, and, and I, I hope that there is a sort of shift where like this sh- proliferation, this like in, insane proliferation of opinion and context and subjectivity that we put on the internet every day and that we have been for um, decades and that, you know, we put out into the world as printed matter and visual matter. And I hope that that survives um, in some form so that people can, can, or not maybe they're not people, but so that beings can kind of look back and sort of understand that we were really trying, like that we really did care and that for humans um, in 2019, like care looked like a diversity of opinion and a diversity of thought and a diversity of, of, you know, ways of thinking. And that's certainly like, that's the only thing that like keeps me going is sort of wanting to, um, you know, in the face of like a lot of terrible things that could happen or might happen or whatever, is that actually that is the essence of who we are right now. And that I see as like a, as a deeply beautiful thing. And I hope that, um, I hope that can be seen and sort of like witnessed by, by people in the future who, who look back on this time and not just sort of not just seeing the a, a predominant narrative, which is a really destructive one, I think. Um, so yeah. So I think that like undergirds a lot of what I'm trying to do um, with Massive, but just like in my life as a, as a person, as an ethical person who cares or who, who wants to perceive themselves as an ethical person who cares. So, so would you, would you, uh, sort of analogize this as the future is a foreign country that I hope isn't just learning about me from the news. <laughs> yeah. Or that I hope the news can be written, but I hope there's enough news is that, um, you know, like that, it, that it doesn't seem so clear cut. I hope it's more complicated than it seems, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I hope that we, we, we never make a map that we're satisfied actually fulfills the Borgesian, uh, one-to-one correlation. I don't even think it's possible. So I think you're in luck. <laughs> so, Nadia, it's been so fun as it, as it always is to talk to you. I hope that I can lure you back onto the show for like a group discussion sometime. Where, where can, where can people find you? Massivesci.com. Yeah. Give us the whole rundown. Yeah, so if you want to um, read more science translated by scientists, um, you can go to MassiveSci.com and you can find us on all the different uh, multitudinous platforms out there if you if you just Google Massive Sci. Um, and then you can find me. I, I exist in a lot of different forms, but uh, if you want to talk to me, you can send me an email at Nadia at MassiveSci.com. That's probably the most... That's the most caring way to reach out to me. I think probably on other platforms, it's uh, it's it's too over mediated. But um, yeah, I'm always happy to chat about all sorts of different things, and I really appreciate you bringing me on. This has been really lovely. I'm always happy to debate, debate, and talk, and um, kind of go off on these weird paths. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with other great shows such as Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, It's All Happening, Synchronicity, Rainbow Brain Skull, and many others. Trip on over to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And if you'd like to support this show directly or would just like to know more about what I am doing in numerous other media, 
head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the bizarre experience of duration as we move through space-time or whatever this is into the moment in which you're listening to the next episode. (laughs) 